very simple title, as you can see from the back of your bulletin, and I think very practical to the reality of our lives uh, day by day. And that is, why fear? Boy, how we wish we could answer that question. Why fear? Man has many fears in, in life. Is it not true? There isn't a one of us that escape it. We have all kinds of fears. It was Job that wrote in Job 15, verse 24, and said these words. Listen carefully. He said, Distress and anguish terrify man. Listen, they are overpowering him like a king ready for the attack. Boy, how descriptive to the reality that many times people don't even see on the outside because it's inside of us. But Job very well expressed basically that distress and the anguish of the heart actually terrify us. So much so that it overpowers us and we're almost like a person that has the inability to really get victory over it. But praise God, we got a great God that is able to give us victory. And we'll see, I believe, some of that in our text this morning. As far as fears go, we all have them. Whether expressed externally or not, whether we want to admit to them or not. And I, you know, yesterday I happened to, I'll refer to this in another context. Yesterday morning, we were with the family and we took a ride um, to uh, Newburyport to walk around and so forth. Early then took a little drive up because they're getting ready to build those sand castles there in, in, in Hampton Beach. And I couldn't help. I'm a guy, you know, looking around and. You know, it's now summertime, and there were guys, you could tell they lifted weights, but they wanted everybody in the world to know they lifted weights. Why? They left their shirt six miles away. You know, we understand that. I mean, I was young, and so I never looked like that, though. But you know what I'm saying. And they were strong. They were, they were and, but you could see it, and they're walking down the streets, and you know, and so forth. That's how we are, macho type of thing, if we're, if we're honest. And it doesn't matter, by the way, when you get older, you still want to, it was interesting, uh, one of, I think it was one of my daughters that pointed out, uh, or someone did, there was another guy, and he was older, I think, than I am, and he had white hair and so forth, but it was just, oh, it was last night. It was the way he sat down, and someone made the comment that, man, that's a macho guy, he wants everybody, the guy was probably 65, you know, but we don't lose that. We don't lose it, is what I'm trying to say. But inside, where people can't see us, we all have fears. Let me give you some examples. We have fears of colleagues, what they're going to think of us, and it affects our life. The people that we know, if we don't do what they expect, or we, we're very afraid of how they'll react. We're just afraid of men in general. We're afraid of the future because we don't know what it's going to be like. We are afraid of disease, if we're honest. Anyone hears the word cancer, they get frightened. We're afraid of doctors. Some are afraid of dentists. You know, it's amazing. Uh, just touch my teeth and, you know, we get panicky and so forth. We're afraid of failure. Is that not true? Yes, it is. We're definitely afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of the dark, some of us. Uh, and that certainly has relevance to our text. We're afraid when a storm comes. And if you don't think you are, let me suggest that we plant you the next time there's a hurricane or a tornado someplace. And let's see how fearful you might be. We're afraid of storms. We're afraid of animals. And by the way, God's given us to rule over them. And if you're really honest and watch, I don't care how 
frightening the animal is, most of the time, unless it's really hungry at the moment, even lions and so forth, they're going to go away. They're afraid of you, but we're afraid of them. In fact, it gets so bad that we get afraid of insects. Somebody sees a spider or an ant and they're panicking over the situation. And I could go on for an hour just on this, obviously. That's not my point. I think you've got what I'm trying to say. In reality, in our lives, our lives are filled with fear, and it goes on and on and on. And it, we know this is true, that once fear sets in, it causes all kinds of things. And I've experienced it. There's none of us that escape it. It causes stress in our life. It causes anxiety. It causes physical emotions and physical weakness, physical weariness in our life. It causes psychological effects in our life that get us down and depressed and discouraged. It's all true. And it actually causes us eventually to sin. What does fear? Fear. No one is immune to it, as I said. So the question this morning is, and does it have any relevance to our text? I think it does. How do we get victory? Is there a way to be victorious over this concept of fear, whether or not someone else can see that fear that even might be inside us? I think there is, and I think there are many texts that can help us with it, but certainly in relevance to what we're looking at in the current text before us, I think there's some help right here that God gives us to the practical application, even of fear, that comes up in our lives. So let me tell us where we're at, if you haven't been with us, and, and uh, so you know what we're covering and what's going on here. And last week, let me mention this again, we pointed out that the main character is not Lazarus. A lot of people have heard about Lazarus and his being raised from the dead. Whether they believe it or they don't, they've heard the story. Lazarus is not the main character. I pointed that out last week. It is Jesus Christ. He's the main character throughout this whole text here. But the context that we've been looking at, Jesus has been beyond. He was in Jerusalem, and then they were threatening his life. He went beyond the Jordan, and he was on the other side because he was threatened by the Jews. I will not repeat the verses, but that was at the end of chapter 10. If you scan that with your eyes, you'll see it. The end of chapter 10, Jesus went to the other side of the Jordan because his life was threatened. And as we enter into chapter 11, in the first three verses, you can see there, that was last week's message, that Mary and Martha, who are in Bethany near Jerusalem, they're right near Jerusalem, right outside of that. We pointed not too far from the Mount of Olives last week. And they send word that their brother, whom they identify as Jesus' friend, and we pointed out last week, it uses the word phileo when it talks about the word uh, love here the one who Jesus loved, their friend was in a life-threatening situation. His life was threatened by whatever disease or sickness that he had. And so they send word. They know the ability that Jesus has to heal. They've witnessed it. They know who he is, and they've claimed it. They've had him in, his home, in their home many times. So they know that the Lord loves this family, and they know that he also loves this man, and he has the capability of healing this person. So they send word. Well, it's interesting because we saw in last week's text in verses 4 through 6 to bring us up to date, what happened in, those, in that passage is Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. Now, many people know that he dies. But people also know that he was resurrected in the front of many, many witnesses. But this was not going to end that way. 
Secondly, he pointed out that this is for the glory of God. This miracle, again, is not just for the sake of man. That's the way people look at it, for me to be healed, for this to happen, that to happen. This was for the glory of God. And it was interesting because we also saw that the Lord said in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister in Lazarus, and he changed the word and said it was agape-type love that he had for them. It was the type of love that he had that was an unconditional love, regardless of circumstances, one that extends beyond the meaning of what man understands, and that the Lord Jesus Christ would give himself for even an enemy. That's the agape love we're talking about. He says, they think I love them just as a friend. No, my love goes way beyond even what they think. And we saw that last week. So that as he's dealing with this, the amazing part we ended with last week was verse 6. That's where we left off. Because in verse 6, after expressing that love, and knowing that he's got a disease that is probably going to kill him in the eyes of the people and so forth, and Jesus knows that it will kill him physically, to express that love, what does he do? He waits two more days. Calm down. Don't worry. And as we ended last week, you would have thought, if somebody honestly, I'm just trying to, so we can understand the practicality. If somebody called me on the phone and said to me, Pastor Dan, my so-and-so just had a heart attack. They don't think he's going to get up to the hospital. I honestly do not know of anyone that I would turn around and say, yeah, see you in two days. Wouldn't happen. Would it with you? I hope not. One of my daughters, as you know, is a paramedic. Can you imagine her coming onto a scene? She comes on the scene. There it is as an accident. She, just this past week, I believe she expressed with that, uh, me that she came on a scene where somebody had a cardiac arrest. Imagine her coming on the scene. Hey, don't worry. Two days, we'll come back. You'll be fine. We'll just check them out. You know? You'd sewer, right? And that's a different type of sewer we're talking about here. But you, you know what I'm getting at. You see, he turns around and says, I love him, and I'm going to wait two more days. Why? I want to make sure that everybody knows this guy's dead. That's why. Okay? So he now decides, and this is really where we're going to pick it up. He decides in seven, verse 7 to go on. And you see where the fear comes in. Because in verse 7, he says, after this, he says to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. He's been threatened. He says, let's go back. And here's where we pick it up today. Because in verse 8, what you find is his disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? What is the problem? It's fear. The disciples are absolutely terrified. Now, they should know. That's why I said Jesus is the central character. They should know who they're with. You say you belong to Christ. You should know who your God is. But isn't it true? We do know intellectually. But when the doctor says you get cancer, when the doctor says something's wrong, when you lose that job, all of a sudden the fear comes in and everything's forgotten. And you don't even know why you're afraid. It happens. It's a reality. They were afraid for their own safety. They were also afraid, in fairness to them, for the Lord Jesus Christ and his safety. They expressed that. Who are they afraid of? They are afraid of men. They are afraid of the unknown. They are afraid of the circumstances that they would be jeopardizing their own safety and the safety of Jesus Christ. So the question is, this morning, in our text, down to verse 16, how did Jesus calm their fears so that by the end of it, in verse 16, Thomas, who everybody calls Doubting Thomas, and they fail to see just how bold this man is, he turns around, and the word Didymus, by the way, just means twin. 
He's a twin. And what happened is he's able to turn around from how can we go there and willing to say, hey, let's go, I'm willing to die with him. How did those fears get calmed down? How did that anxiety get taken away? Well, let's take a look at the text this morning, and let's see the principle stated in verses 9 through 10 as I've given you the outline. It doesn't really look like much to us at first when we hear about it today. But in verses 9 and 10, let me read them again. Jesus answered, here's his reply to their fear. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, by the way, it's the light of this world is the way I should have read that. That's a very important expression there. Let me tell you that, first of all, this is a proverb. It's a proverbial statement. It is like our book of Proverbs that we have in our Bible. And the background to it was they didn't have timepieces like we have today. The Swiss hadn't invented the watches and done everything that they do with the watches. They didn't have all of these timepieces that they deal with like we have with satellites and so forth and so on. However, they did keep track of time, and it was very common, particularly to our context, that with the Jews and the Romans, it wasn't just the Jews. Some of the reading I did indicated that the Romans did the same thing. That what they did is they divided the time of the day into two simple periods, 12-hour periods, meaning night and day. Now, with obviously the seasons, some would become a little longer or not, but for simplicity, they just use the expression 12 hours of day, 12 hours of night. And that's the way they, they visualized it. And they made it simple. During the light, the reason they had this proverb is when the light was out, and you notice it says the light of this world. He's not talking about Jesus Christ there yet. When it says the light of this world, he's talking about the sun. While the sun was out was a statement, that's when you can work. When the sun goes to bed... What happens? You go to bed. There's no work that can be performed. That's when you rest. That's when you sleep. And it was kind of the way the people lived, just so that we can understand historically the setting of it. You had a situation where they understood when it was daylight, and as long as you had that day, well, you were not going to stumble. Listen, that's important. No matter what the problem was that came up, you could see it, and you could avoid it or get through it. But if you were trying to work in the nighttime when you couldn't see, what would happen is you would stumble, you would fall, you could get injured, and there was things to be feared. And most people, even in our culture when the United States was started, operated on that idea. Farmers did. They'd get up with the sun, they'd go down with the sun and go to bed and so forth. So that's the idea. And the point of the proverb was this, according to their time. It was you can only, you, number one, you only have so much time to do your work. You, That's what the proverb meant to them. You only have so much time to do your work while there is light available. Secondly, the proverb was used in this sense, that there are obstacles that you will see while you're doing your work, but you don't stop working because that's all the time you've got to do the work. So the obstacles that come along, that's what they meant by the not stumbling, you still continue to work because you can see the obstacles and you work through them. That's part of what the proverb meant. And so you wanted to keep working. And the, ob the idea was work while you can and don't worry about the obstacles that come along. 
Now, there were several applications of this passage to help the disciples. First of all, for the Lord Jesus Christ. He only had so much time on the earth. And that's where he comes back to himself when he refers to himself and even the fact that he's going to do some work. What's he referring to? He is going to do the Father's will with the limited amount of time that he's got and he is perfectly safe. They were worried about his life. He is absolutely perfectly safe because when his time comes, his time comes for the cross. Look at what we've already learned. Go back with me to chapter 7 for a minute. Just two verses. Go back to chapter 7 and let's remember what we've learned already in verse 30. We'll get to the application to us in a couple of moments. But we need to understand the context here. In verse 30 of chapter 7, remember this? Jesus Christ said this. What? So they were seeking to seize him. Remember? Now watch. No man laid on laid his hand on him. Why? Here's the reason. His hour had not yet come. They wanted to seize him. They couldn't do it. Go to chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words, this is Jesus Christ. He spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. He's been teaching this principle to the disciples all along. What's he saying? By the time he comes to chapter 11, they're saying they want to seize you. They want to stone you, verse 8. And what's he saying when he uses the hour again? There's only so much time for me, and I don't need to worry about the end. They can't do anything to me. Why? My time is not yet here. Let me give you another application for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was near the end of his ministry. His earthly public ministry is about to come to a close. And when it does, then he's going to the cross. But here's something for every one of us. He didn't quit at the end. He's only got so much time. And by the way, you're going to see the application. So do you and so do I. And it didn't matter whether he was at the end of his public ministry. It would have been very easy for him to say, look, I'm tired I've been laboring for 30 years. I've been ministering to you for three years. You didn't catch it in chapter 7. You didn't catch it in chapter 8. You know what? I'm tired. I quit. No. He still reminded himself, I've only got so much time, and that's the time I've got to work, and my time is not done. So I've got to finish the course. Very important. He was not going to be worrying about what was coming his way because he would continue to do the Father's will. Now, there was application directly to the apostles or the disciples. What? He was responding to their fear in verse 8 when he said that in verses 9 and 10. Why? What did he teach them in chapter 8? Go back there again to, in verse 12. Take a look. Chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. He will have the light of life. And what he's already taught them, he's teaching them about the sun, something that they can relate to, the proverbial statement of only being able to work. And he says, I'm the light of the world, he's taught them. And he wants them basically to walk 
in view of that teaching. They ought to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not afraid of men. They don't need to be afraid of men. They don't need to be afraid of circumstances if they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, meaning the disciples, only have so much time to do the work of God. That's it. Do the work of God while you can. That's the point to his disciples. Do the work of God and don't worry about the obstacles that come your way. Now let me give you a couple of reminders for us. You and I have a limited amount of time. Now I know that there's all kinds of medical advancements and what's going on in the world. We read about it and so forth. But let's get right down to brass tacks. The scriptures basically say that you've got 70 years on this earth. And those of you that are already 70 years of age, you know what? You're already on borrowed time. That's the truth. That's not to discourage you. I'm trying to help you to face reality. If you're 80 years of age, you're at the end of the rope. And that's not to discourage you either. But the scriptures say, if by chance you reach 80, it's not without a lot of problems. Now, God may allow everyone in this audience to live to be 100. I doubt that. But he may. But that's an exception to the rule. And any of you that are over the age of 20 realize this. Life goes by fast. When you're a teenager, you think you're never going to, first of all, you're never going to get to be a teen. Then when you get to be a teen, you think it's never going to, you know, you're never going to be 21 and so forth. And after you get to be 25, 30 years of age, you wonder where everything started to go. And then you don't know what happens between 30 and 50. It's just, it's gone. And you don't know, your kids came along, everything happened, and you say, what in the, where did it go? What happened? And what I'm telling you, you have a limited amount of time, and so do I. And I can tell you this, I'm older than many of you, I'm younger than some of you, I'm probably near the 10 o'clock news at night. I might be near the 11 o'clock news for all I know. I could be two minutes to 12, but the time's drawing short. And so is yours. And what are we doing with the time is the point. What are we doing? It doesn't matter where we are on the timeline. Not at all. What matters is don't worry about the obstacles. Be following the Lord Jesus Christ just like in the daytime is when you can do your work. When you're following the Lord is when you can have success. And I can have success. The safest place to be in this world I don't care if it's Thailand, I don't care if it's China, I don't care if it's Africa, I don't care if it's the United States of America, the safest place in the world to be is in the will of God. And Jesus Christ was saying that to them. I'm in the will of the Father, I'm not going before my time, I've got nothing to worry about, no matter what the obstacles are. And neither do you, disciples, and neither do you and I today. Let me remind you what we've already learned. In John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, did not the Lord already say to those who belong to him, I have you in my hand, and no one can take you out. You are in my Father's hand, no one can take you out. It doesn't matter. Cancer can't take you out of that. Losing a job can't take you out of the Father's hand discouragement can't take you out of the Father's hand. You can't take you out of the Father's hand. Your days have been determined. Would you turn with me to Job chapter uh, 14 for just a moment? If you find the book of Proverbs and you find the book of Psalms, write it. It's a big book in the middle of your Bible. 
Just look before that and you'll find Job. Go with me to Job chapter 14. I want you to see how practical this can be. And bear with the, uh, the men, by the way. I know that we're early on in the summer. Actually, summer begins tomorrow, right? And they're trying to balance the heat and the cool. Because I know some of you one time is going like this. Next time you're putting on your sweaters. They're trying to balance that. And Lord willing, we'll get it. It's just the beginning of the year. They're trying to balance that. Just give them a little patience. All right. Job chapter 14. Watch just the first five verses. And I'll concentrate on verse uh, five particularly. Look at what he says. This is a man who knew pain. Man who is born of a woman is short-lived, right, and full of turmoil. Anybody wants to disagree with that? Okay. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Our time's short, right? You also open your eyes and on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. We're going to face him. Verse 4. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Now watch verse 5. Since, put your name there, your days, whatever your name, I'll do mine, since Dan's days are determined, the number of Dan's months is with God. And his limits you have set so that Dan cannot pass. Now put your name in there. What's that saying? Let's get it in perspective. Your days have been determined by God. Why do I need to fear? It doesn't matter. If cancer comes your way, you may live with it for 10 years. You may live with it for two days. No one is going to shorten your life. If you are talking to a neighbor and you're afraid of your colleagues when they put pressure on you to fall into sin, why are you afraid of them? If they end up leaving you, your life's not going to come to an end. If you happen to get sick or you happen to lose your job, that isn't going to change the end of your days. God knows all your days. You're in his hand. No one can change them. No one can add. No one can delete them. So why worry? That's Matthew chapter 6. And the reason he says you can't serve money or man, and some people get worried about that, isn't it true that money is the center of everything? I don't have enough money to buy this. I don't have enough money to buy that. I don't have enough money to go here. I don't have enough money to, for this. I don't have enough money. I remember, I'll never forget it. It was, um, um, some of you are going to remember this name. We used to have him for a family camp all the time as the main speaker, right? Dr. Percy. What happened? Do you know how he got to the mission field? He had his mission board. He had everybody telling him, you don't have enough money to go. And one little lady came up in the church one night, this is his testimony, and said to him, I don't have much, but if you can take this, this might be able to help you. And, he, and I remember him saying, he looked at this woman and said, everybody's telling me I don't have enough money. This woman's telling me the Lord wants you to go, go. And he said, that's it. And he left and became a tremendous missionary. You know why? He followed the will of the Lord and didn't let anything else worry him. And what I'm trying to say, we let everything else bog us down. Loss of job, broken leg, physical health, surgery, the unknown, the dark, whatever it is. I don't have to fear. Well, then how do I get over it, Pastor Dan? Make that practical and then get back to the text. Yes, Philippians chapter 4. Let's go there. 
How can I get victory in a practical sense? Here's how. How do I do this? I don't have the Lord walking here, encouraging me with these words. You do have the word of God. Philippians chapter 4 for a moment. Verses 4 through 9. And everybody's going to say, oh, I knew it. I know these verses. Yeah, but do you apply them? Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord when you feel good. Rejoice in the Lord until you lose your job. Rejoice in the Lord till your health goes south. No, it says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for everything. No, be anxious for nothing. In other words, do not fear. How do I do that? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard, watch this, your hearts and what else? Your minds. That's where the battle is. I'm afraid of what I don't know. God knows it all. Pray. He goes on, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are right, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Get your mind thinking about the blessings. Get your mind thinking about what God's doing. Get your mind thinking about what's right rather than what's possible, rather than what's wrong. And the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice them. And then what happens? And the God of peace will be with you. See? So it's practical. I need to think on the things of God. I need to remember who I am in Christ. I need to remember the disciples lost sight of that. So to summarize, just verses 9 and 10, I'll go back there to John now. I'm still in verses 9 and 10. In those verses, the summarization is, we only have so much time. Don't worry about the obstacles. And it leads us right into verse 11. Get to work. Get your focus back on what you're supposed to be doing. Now verses 11 to 15. This is this, he said, and after that, after he told them basically not to worry, you've got to do your work while you can, he now says to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And I believe the Lord's very specific in saying that. He says, let us go, plural. Come on, let's all go. But he says, only I can heal him. That's what he's saying. And he goes right back to the singular. He says, he's fallen asleep, but let us go together, but I have to be the one to wake him up out of sleep. And that's an encouragement. I'm the one that can guide you. I'm the one that does the work. You come along, and if you're a Christian, you and I need to see it doesn't matter what we're doing in life. We are simply vessels through which God can work. Doesn't Corinthians say that? Remember in the context of they were arguing about who's the better teacher and who's the better whatever? And Paul says, look, what's Apollos? Who's Paul? What are they? They're co-workers with you. One waters, one uh, uh, basin, sorry, one plants, one waters. What, but who's going to give the increase? God. You see, he's got to do the work. He's got to do the work in our life. And he, they needed to see that. They needed to see that God's the one that's doing the work. And he uses the word sleep here, by the way. And we know that he's talking of death. And the reason we know he's talking of death 
I want you to see this, by the way. Very important point. Even his disciples took him literally. The context says that he, he was, they thought he was speaking of literal sleep in verse 13. Or literal slumber. Why? Because they took God at his word. Even the disciples didn't play with allegorizing anything unless the Lord showed them that they should. And you find that right there when he says, I tell you clearly, he's dead when he comes down to that in verse 14. But they took him literally and they misunderstood. God often used the word sleep, by the way. That doesn't mean that souls have sleep. What he's, he did in a very kind way of speaking of death. He talked about that when, in the passage in 1 Thessalonians, that those who are dead in Christ and those who have fallen asleep in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, throughout the chapter, when he talks about the resurrection, he talks about people who have slept in Christ. And it's a kind way of putting it. The disciples misunderstood him. And I want you to see the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, by the way. Is he God? Yes. The messengers came to him in the first few verses, right? Yes. Did they tell him he was dead? No. They simply said, can you come because your friend's sick? But Jesus, having not gone, having waited two more days, which means three days have now passed, he never gets another message, never goes there, and in verse 14 he said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. How did he know that? Because he's God. Again, put it in context. He's with the disciples. Are you really worried about going to Jerusalem if you're following my will? I'm here. Do I have to be afraid of what they might do to me when I know my father has given me a schedule and I need to stay on my schedule? Can they do anything to divert that? No. They can't. I'm with you. And he says that he was dead. Shows his sovereignty. No one told him that. So then he challenges them what? Just as I have in your notes, it's time to get to work. Because he says to them, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you might believe. And you know what? That is why we fear. That is why we have anxiety. We really don't believe what Jesus is saying. That he will provide. That we really don't believe that, you know what? No one can take my life from me. No one can shorten that. You say, well, what if I go into a, um, a soldier and I end up getting shot? That was your time. God knew it all along. By putting on that uniform, that's not what changed it. Not at all. And if that you were in the will of God there witnessing, we're praying this morning for a meal, whatever ship that's in, and I pray to God for his safety. But if it happened that that ship got blown up, was he out of the will of God? Absolutely not. He was right where God wanted him. What has he got to fear? What have I got to fear? And he wanted his disciples. You see, it was a message for them. And they didn't even have to fear death. And that's what comes to the end of the message. That's why you've got verse 16, and I put in your notes, very familiar expression, capodium. We know that term. Isn't it interesting? Thomas turns around and says to them, he's called the twin, says to his fellow disciples, let us go. Look, I heard it. Today's the day we got to work while there's light, while there's opportunity, while I've got life. Jesus Christ knows what he's doing. He's going to heal Lazarus. He's still thinking they're going to get him. Well, that's fine. I want to be with him. I can die there too. Let's go do the work. Now this expression, compadium, I want to make a few comments on it 
maybe you don't really have the background. We know it is seize the day. Literally, the term means or to take advantage of the opportunity, and that's good application. The words literally mean to pluck or to gather. It comes from the Latin. It actually comes from a Latin poem by Horace. And the meaning was to enjoy or to make use of. And it actually came in a, in a longer expression, and everybody's pulled in on the two words of the expression. But the expression was capodium quam mime credula postero. You know what that means? No, I had to look it up too when I took Latin. But anyway, here's what it means. Seize the day, trusting as little as possible in the next one or the future. Now, nobody looks at the rest of that. Seize the day now. You can't trust tomorrow. Remember the verse in Matthew? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Tomorrow is sufficient for its own evil. Tomorrow is sufficient. And that's the focus that we come in, is just on the first part, seize the day. Well, if you want to do that, simply put, take advantage of the time God's given you. That's what Thomas is saying. Thomas is going along before this resurrection of Lazarus. They're being taught a terrific lesson. Don't be afraid of the obstacles that are in front of you. Don't have the fears in your heart knowing who you belong to. And you notice when he's going to take advantage, it's not for himself. Thomas doesn't say, let us go so we can watch them kill Jesus. He's saying, let us go so that we might die with him. I would venture to say that when most people say the words capodium, or they think about seizing the day, most people mean get the most out of this life. Get the most for me. It's not what he's saying at all. And it's not what is meant by that term, nor ever was. The idea is take advantage of your time, make the most of it now for the glory of God. That's how the Christian should be looking at it. Take advantage of the opportunity now because of the glory of God. Would you turn with me to just two verses, and then I'll close with some comments. Ephesians chapter 5. Go there for one second. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. I'll read verse 15 first. In verse 15 it says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. See, God wants us to be wise. He wants wise men. Verse 16, Making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And is there anybody that would debate that? When you pick up your newspaper, you listen to your news, you listen to the internet or TVs or CDs or whatever. The days are evil, folks. Seize it. Make the most of your time. That's what he's saying. Wisely. Who are we to fear? According to Proverbs 1, fear God. According to Psalm 76, I believe it is, fear God. Don't fear men. Don't fear circumstances. That's what brings on our anxiety. Fear God. Make the most of your time. Colossians chapter 4 is the other verse. Colossians chapter 4. Thomas and the disciples, give them credit for this. They were willing to go and even die if that was the case. If it meant following their Savior. If it meant following them. Once they understood what Jesus Christ was getting across to them. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. It says this. 
Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Conduct yourself how? Toward outsiders. Make the most of your opportunity. And so in the sense, if you want to use that word kapodiam, it would be this. Make the most of the time that God's given you right now. For the glory of God. Be walking in the will of God. How does that break down? It starts with salvation. No wonder we find this in the scripture. Tomorrow is the day of salvation. Is that what you find in your Bibles? I don't. Today is the day of salvation. Why? You don't know what tomorrow brings. I shared in a conversation with someone this week about a mile and a half from where I'm standing right now. On a Sunday afternoon, I was with my family swimming down here at Harris Pond. And I didn't know that it was the last day I would see my dad. It was that week that my dad died. Last time I saw him. Why am I trying to show you that as an application? You and I live as if we think we've got everything tomorrow, but we know inside we don't. There are many religions in the world. There are many churches in the world. Fellowship Bible Church has nothing on any special situation. It is Jesus Christ that said, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Him. Why did He say that? All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We all know that we're sinners. Well, maybe I can be religious. Maybe I can do enough good works to get into heaven. No, you can't. You can only get to heaven through Jesus Christ because He said so. Because He makes the rules. Because He is God's way of salvation. And you think you can push it off till tomorrow or the next week or the next week. Today is the day of salvation. Seize the day. If you're not saved, you better believe on Jesus Christ today because you don't know that you got this afternoon. You fathers on Father's Day, seize the day. Make the most of your opportunity as a parent to train your children for the glory of God. Don't be so occupied with this. So many that I graduated with from high school and college that don't know the Lord. And they're living like they were still 18 years of age. And they're not taking the time to invest their lives in their family, in their wives and in their children for the glory of God. Take advantage of the time now for the glory of God. Do the will of God today. Seize the day. Don't say tomorrow I'll serve Him. When I get better I'll serve Him. God's called us to serve and to use our gifts for the glory of God. The day is coming when you cannot do that. And if you're not using your gifts for the glory of God, you're wasting your time and God's use of your time here. Use them for the glory of God. Take advantage. If God is calling you to the field, to a mission field, don't let anyone get in your way. Go in God's timing, yes. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You young people, don't take the criticism of those who don't like people who serve for God because they're not cool. I remember seeing one time even a person saying that these people aren't the right people for my group. Don't let that scare you away from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Serve Him now. You don't know how long you've got. 
you're a housewife, you're working for uh, the government, working as a fireman, working as a, um, uh, in the military, working in computers, you, you're working as a secretary, working whatever capacity you might be. Do it for the glory of God and serve Him now. Don't be putting it off. Don't let worry, don't let concern, don't waste your time. We all do it from time to time. Don't, let me give you this, don't be like Israel. We know the story, most of you do. Israel came up, they had a great opportunity in front of them. Eight spies come back and say, there's giants in the land, we're like grasshoppers, we can't do it. And what happened? The people of God failed to go on with God because they were afraid. They were nervous. They didn't serve God and they lost their opportunity and wasted 40 years. They lived 40 more, some of them, and wasted every minute of it while they were living in the world. And there were two that said, yeah, they are big. Whoa, are they big. But you know what? Our God, they didn't forget what is being taught here. These disciples had Jesus Christ with them. We have the Lord Jesus Christ as our guide. And they turned around and said, Our God is able to take care of those giants. Our God is able to take care of everything. Let's go. Thomas says, Let's go with them that we might die. What difference does it matter? We're doing what God wants us to do. And my challenge to myself, my challenge to you this morning, is whatever God would have you to do, don't lose your focus. Be in the will of God. Be serving Him. Keep the eyes fixed on Him, the author and finisher of your faith. Dwell on the things that are right, Philippians. And seize the day for the glory of God. Because we don't know that we've got another one to come. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the boldness that he had. While the Son of God, he knew his time frame, and he knew that the cross was coming, but his day was not yet. And he could face the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He could face anything that came his way, knowing he was in your will. And Father, we're not there yet, but we realize that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he faced fear, and even asked, Lord, if it be possible to take this from him, he realized that he was safest in your hands and he was able even to face the cross of Calvary because he trusted you. And Father, let us learn the example the disciples had to learn that Mary and Martha are going to have to learn that they need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of all the circumstances. Father, you know every heart in this room those who do not know Christ, I pray that you'd help them to see that they cannot get to heaven by good works. They cannot get to heaven by any church attendance, even by reading their Bible. They can only get to heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty and price for their sin, just as we've sung about today, and help them to trust in him today. For the many in this room that know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you'd help us to seize the day for the glory of God. Help us to walk in your will, not to be taken over by the obstacles, not to let our fears keep us from serving you, from doing what we should be doing. And Father, we have to admit we're weak. And so, Father, we say, increase our faith. 
Help us to walk with you as we should, that you might get glory and that we might have the joy that we should be experiencing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.